This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and trying to learn the lessons of history so that we don't doom ourselves to repeating them. Today, Haiti is in crisis and Canada has been asked to lead a military intervention. Let's delve into the history of Canada's relationship with Haiti. And zooming out a bit, how is our military doing in general and are we prepared for the future? Joining me this week, we have a seasoned backbencher, Emily Nicolas, columnist and host of Candeland's French language podcast, Detour. Hello. Hi. And congrats on the new job at Libération. I'm very excited for you. Thank you. Next, we have the host of Commons, Archie Mann. Nice to see you again. I see your agent, Noor, is working hard to get you bookings on the backbench. <laughs> that's that's right. Uh, she, she does a very good job. <laughs> Happy to be here. I hope she's taking her 10%. New to the backbench, we have Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for The Globe and Mail. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's get into it. The situation in Haiti is heartbreaking. Canada uh, has stood with the people of Haiti for decades. The Caribbean country has descended to a new level of chaos. How can we upgrade the capacity of the Haitian security forces to do their job? Haiti once again finds itself in a state of crisis. The country is facing civil disorder, escalating gang violence, a fuel shortage, food shortages, and an outbreak of cholera. You may remember that the president of the country, Jovenel Moïse, was assassinated in the summer of 2021, catalyzing political unrest in the country. Things have only gotten worse since then. 
This past October, the unelected acting prime minister, Ariel Henry, who has been in power since Boise's assassination, called for a specialized armed force to help Haiti. This is a controversial request because many Haitians feel that Henri's leadership is illegitimate and because the country has experienced centuries of abuse and violations of its sovereignty at the hands of foreign powers, they're really wary of seeing a repeat of a tale they know all too well. For our part, Canada has recently been facing pressure from U.S. President Joe Biden to lead a military intervention in Haiti. So far, our prime minister has pledged $16.5 million to help stabilize the political turmoil. He's imposed sanctions on some of the country's elites, and he's offered support to the Haitian National Police. In November, Trudeau said he's not ready to deploy the military. It is not enough for Haiti's government to ask for it. There needs to be a consensus across political parties in Haiti before we can move forward on uh, more significant steps. But more recently, as the situation has been escalating, he hasn't denied the possibility of a military intervention. We will continue to be there for the people of Haiti. Canada has a unique relationship with Haiti, as there's a substantial Haitian diaspora living in Canada, with over 85% of those Haitian Canadians living in Quebec. So with this long-standing history, do we have a responsibility in this crisis, and what should that responsibility look like if we're to act on it? So I do want to get into the history a bit. Um, Emily, for your part, you've written that the crisis in Haiti should actually be first and foremost understood as a political crisis, and that the humanitarian crisis that I mentioned in the open uh, has to be understood as a consequence of that political crisis. So for our listeners, can you explain what that distinction is and why it's important? So in July of 2021, the president of Haiti was assassinated, Jovenel Moïse. While we don't have all the answers yet in terms of what happened, there's been a lot of investigative journalists done already that points to at least some level of responsibility coming from people close to uh, the former president of Haiti, the person that preceded him. Essentially, that the story that we now have, and there's been some really good journalism done in that in the New York Times, is that Janel Maïs tried to break the cycle of Haiti being a very corrupt state, having some deals with some gangs for armed trading for drug trade as well. And uh, as a result of that, he displeased a lot of people. There's been a political crisis since because essentially when the president was assassinated just two weeks before the judge of the Supreme Court, the head of the Supreme Court of Haiti had died of COVID. So he would have been constitutionally the person replacing the president. And so that person is also not there. There was also a delay in the election. The parliaments are supposed to essentially be in charge of figuring out what the next steps are also doesn't exist anymore. So there is no National Assembly left. There's hardly any Senate left. There's no municipal people, uh, mayors being elected as well. So there's a vacuum of, of leadership. So everybody's basically running the country ad hoc. And that obviously void of power creates more opportunity for armed gangs to take over, for example, the the trade of oil and gas in the country, which is very much controlled by gangs, and food as well. So, and that creates a, a security issue where there's been a lot of gun shootings, there's been a lot of kidnappings. For example, a lot of my friends have family who live in Haiti, even people who live in Montreal that go spend the winter in Haiti, and now everybody's back in Montreal for the first time I've seen in my life. That's just, you know, just in the history of the last two years, but this is really a 200-year history. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I want to delve a little bit more into some of the history of Haiti and why this talk of armed intervention right now is not really the first time we've had this conversation and not even the first time we've had this conversation in Canada. Mm-hmm. We actually have a long history of military intervention in Haiti. So Arshi, what has the relationship between Canada and Haiti been like historically? And what does that relationship really look like today? I think for a long time, Canada's relationship to Haiti has been a lot like its relationship to other Caribbean countries. It works closely with the United States and uh, former imperial powers like Britain, France, Spain, in order to work for its own interests. When it comes to Haiti in more recent years, Canada was is part of something called the Core Group. The Core Group is made up of a number of countries and organizations, including the United States, France, Spain, the OAS, the EU, and Canada. And they've had, I'd say, a pretty shady history of intervening in Haitian politics, going all the way back to the 2004 coup against leftist President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, which was basically planned out of a hotel room in Ottawa without the participation of Haitian political leaders or, or civil society. Ever since then, Canada has been supportive, although did not have boots in the ground when it came to the United Nations, led peacekeeping mission, Munista, which was led by the Brazilians, and has continued pushing the so-called Western powers agenda in Haiti. You can even see this when it comes to the acting prime minister, Ariel Henry. He was basically crowned the president of Haiti by the core group. So all that is to say that a lot of Haitians have a lot of distrust, I think for good reason, when it comes to foreign interventions, including from Canada. I think we have this sense that Canadians are kind of, you know, seen as like, oh, we're soft and and nice. And I don't think that is the perception in a lot of the world, but especially in Haiti because of a lot of the disasters that have followed some of the, the interventions that we have pretty aggressively supported. Whether we're talking about the cholera epidemic that accompanied the UN peacekeeping mission, or if we're even, you know, just talking about the rampant sexual abuse of Haitians by UN soldiers. The kind of political side of it is is pretty, pretty bad. But then, of course, we also have a large Haitian diaspora here. We have a history of, of Haitians migrating to Canada. And I think, you know, one thing that we should be thinking about during this crisis is what can we do on that end? So much of the way the crisis is being framed right now is in order to stop migrants from leaving Haiti. The only reason the U.S., to to my mind, seems really particularly concerned right now about what's going on in Haiti is because they're afraid of boats showing up on their shores full of Haitian refugees. And I think that that is the opposite way that we should be thinking about this. If there is a humanitarian crisis going on in the Western Hemisphere right now, which, which appears to be the case, we should be thinking about ways in which we can like help people out there. And one of those ways is definitely through migration. Yeah, a couple of interesting threads there. I think that the sort of peacekeeping narrative, the idea that because we put the word peace in the name, that somehow means that it's good and is going to be well-received by people in the country where peacekeepers are, is something that I forget a lot of people still buy into. It's definitely a narrative that like I got taught in school and I assume is probably still being taught in schools. So I think, Arshi, you touched on one reason perhaps why the U.S. wants Canada to assist in this intervention is that there's this concern about migrants from Haiti. I know we hear a lot about... 
Haitians either entering the U.S. by boat, crossing the U.S.-Canada border, like a lot of the population that has been trying to cross irregularly into Quebec has been Haitians that have initially gone to the U.S. Uh, Stephen, for your part, is that all that there is to the U.S. wanting Canada to lead a military intervention? Is there more going on? What's your view on it? If there's two countries that have been you know, the most active in Haiti, it's the United States and Canada. And so therefore, it's natural that the U.S. looks to Canada. The U.S. has no appetite right now for more foreign military interventions, and it wants somebody else to shoulder the load. Of course, in Washington, there's a feeling that's been there for a long time. And the narrative from congressional leaders and the administration is that Canada really doesn't shoulder its fair share in terms of military expenditure, in terms of military contributions. The only other country they could rely on to do it would be Canada. And we've seen this dance now for, I would say, about four months, where the U.S. sort of implies that it's up to Canada to do this, but then sort of claims it doesn't want to jam Canada by explicitly saying that they should be doing this. In terms of the U.S.'s motivation for there being an intervention at all, is it really just about migrants? Is there any element of sort of genuine humanitarian concern? Like, what do we think is going on in terms of why the U.S. thinks there needs to be an intervention, period? Oh, I definitely agree. It's migrants. I mean, that's why the U.S. Coast Guard is patrolling Haiti. And the migrants are obviously coming through Mexico as well. And that's that's a real problem. It's a, a sign to the U.S. that this problem's getting worse. At this point, it seems kind of unclear whether Canada is going to intervene militarily, right? Trudeau has been somewhat unwilling to commit one way or the other on this issue. They've been telegraphing pretty heavily that they have no interest in a military intervention. Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations in New York, has been out there saying a military intervention won't have a lasting impact. I don't think they can say any clearer than that. He's speaking far more frankly than Mr. Trudeau is, Mm -hmm. who leaves it open. However, I still think it means police. I still think it means, in the Canadian government's mind, uh, sending police down there. There is a small, small contingent right now of police attached to the UN. I think that that would be part of the solution. But all Mr. Ray talks about is, is restoring order, restoring public health. And then, of course, making the conditions right for a uh, for election. If we assume Canada has no military intervention, I think it's interesting the notion that, well, maybe there won't be a military intervention, but there's going to be some kind of police support. What do the other options look like that are not military intervention? If Canada is going to do something in response to the conditions in Haiti to maybe try and throw a bone to the U.S. at all, what is the substantive difference between a military intervention and police support? They're not making it clear what they're looking at. They're really keeping their cards close to their chest. What they are doing is they are supplying the Haitian National Police with more equipment. So far, it seems to be beef up the Haitian National Police, regardless of whether we have concerns about that. There's a lot in what you said. Why it's interesting to see Barbara at this point being maybe this is not what we need. I think it's not necessarily just coming from a a dawn on them that there are other ways to deal with this. I also think it's coming from the failure of the intervention in Afghanistan that has scarred both Canada and the U.S. And there is not an appetite right now for sending the army anywhere doing any war that's about, you know, quote unquote, saving a people in a country that has a history of being incredibly complicated. So the U.S. is trying to tell Canada to do it. And Canada is saying, hey, If that kind of intervention hasn't worked before, maybe we shouldn't be doing them at all. So the second point of your question, yes, it's beefing up the police. And that's something that Canada has been doing for a while. There's been RCMP officers and other just individual police officers from different police bodies in Canada that have been training the Haitian police for years now. 
And because they've been essentially overwhelmed by gangs, who are, by the way, armed by guns that are being smuggled from the U.S., so it's all a big <laughs> cycle there. So it's really interesting that the U.S. is trying to send Canada to solve a gang and like gun problem that they're creating through their own lack of gun control. And then there's the political crisis itself, what Archie was mentioning, the core group. Part of their action has been direct intervention of the political system, and part of it is just essentially like brokering peace between the different, there's like a gazillion political parties in Haiti, trying to get them to all sit at the same table and work together is in and of itself very difficult. So that's what Bob Ray has been trying to position himself as is the person that's going to sit everyone around the table and trying to figure out a way to constitutionally, hopefully, <laughs> help people solve the political crisis, which would then help unlock everything else. Uh, the situation, the humanitarian crisis is still very dire, but the worst maybe was in September, October. There's been some signs already of things getting better. And because of that as well, I think the momentum, the appetite for military intervention is also slowing down a little bit. Emily's been talking about how we're looking at this through through a security lens, but I'd go even further and say we're looking at it through a kind of criminal lens that mm -hmm. isn't really that useful. You know, all the language we're talking about is about gangs and like, yes, these are gangs, but they're also political in nature. A lot of these gangs mm -hmm. rose up because they were providing social services and, and filling a security vacuum that had been like kind of left open by the government. And so because we're looking at it through that kind of criminal lens, the only answer that we seem to have is more police. However, you know, how did the kind of most acute part of of this crisis come to an end? And I'm talking about the blockade and takeover of one of the ports that pretty much cut off Haiti from energy imports. They negotiated directly with the gang leaders. It was brought to, in some ways, a kind of peaceful resolution. And I say that because we have to think about these gangs, or at least some of them, as political actors. They are, in, in a lot of ways, part of this process. And so while it might be unsavory to do so, you have to engage with them. But I think looking at it exclusively through a kind of security and a policing kind of criminal lens leads us into a narrow band of solutions. And so we have to be, I think, a little bit more creative if our only answers are either intervention or significantly beefing up the police, like I think there's open question about whether or not that's actually going to work. I think the focus, at least for now, should be on as much of the humanitarian side as it can be. And because we have at least moved past the most acute part of that blockade, maybe there's some hope that things can get better from here. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you. 
Now it's time for Private Members Bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call on the Honourable Member from Outremont to introduce a Private Members Bill. I would like to introduce a bill whereby we formally acknowledge that the World Economic Forum is over in the broader sense of the term. Like, that place is just, it's done. (laughs) It's been done since the pandemic, essentially, since the Great Reset's conspiracy theory. With everything falling apart, we can reshape the world in ways we couldn't before. Ways that better address so many of the challenges we face. And that's why so many are calling for a Great Reset. In a way, I think... It's become so radioactive for so many head of states to show up there. And it shows that the only one G7 leader has actually showed up this year, the the German chancellor. And also, it's just not so cool in a state of like grave economic crisis and inflation to show up in a retreat of billionaires as well. And we need to just acknowledge that. So, yeah, I declare Davis over. All right. Now I'd like to hear from the honorable member from Davenport. Honorable Speaker, I just want to talk a little bit about our transportation system this winter. I'm sure a lot of our listeners experience this of just trying to get somewhere for Christmas, uh, whether it was by train, whether it was by plane. Last I checked, the complaints line for the, the Canadian Transportation Agency is tens and tens of thousands of people deep, and they must have added even more people just over those holidays. And what I find so interesting is just how little the government really seemed to have this affect them. You know, in the United States, Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, was at least pretty aggressive in his rhetoric in terms of of going after the airlines and really kind of pushing a pro-consumer line. And I don't think we're really seeing that here. Minister Algebra is just kind of let it slide. He, you know, seems to be walking some of that back, his inaction, or his seeming inaction at least, during the Christmas holidays. It's just stuff like this that makes me think that this government may not be long for this world. That is my private member's bill right there. Now we'll hear from the Honourable Member from Ottawa Centre. I want to build on what Archie said. I think that one of the things that I would want to promote as a talking point is, is the loss of faith in government to deliver to citizens. It's not only transportation systems, it's it's our healthcare system. And I worry that younger generations are coming to the conclusion you can't expect much from government. That is not a great trend, in my opinion. You should expect more from government. And when it comes to your healthcare system as well, not only when it comes to processing a passport or getting across a border. I think that really reminds me of, I guess, the recent announcement by Doug Ford's government in Ontario about further privatizing healthcare and expanding public-private partnerships. I think as we see sort of the government's ability to provide services just erode, uh, there are going to be a lot of people who get duped into thinking that private alternatives are going to offer them better services, when in the long run, that may well not be true. Maybe it also all connects to what I was saying about Davis, but only if you believe in the conspiracy theories. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) 
And and even that it goes, it ties into the Haiti stuff as well, because the kind of acute political (laughs) crisis came because of the end of energy subsidies by the Haitian government, which had been pushed for years and years and years by the kind of Davos crowds. And so, you know, it's all part of a thing. It's all connected. It's all a plan. It's a plan, guys. (laughs) It's all connected, but just like not in the way that people say. Exactly. (laughs) Plunging recruiting numbers, aging fighter jets and warships, unconventional missions at home, bailing out pandemic-laced nursing homes, and fighting forest fires. Canada has reached an agreement to acquire a fleet of 88 new F-35 fighter jets. Canada will send 200 Canadian-made Senator armored personnel carriers worth $90 million to Ukraine. The cost of doing nothing is far greater. That the fastest way to attack North America is through the Arctic. I have grave concerns, uh, not only about the the capabilities we have, but the ability to sustain them in terms of ammunition, in terms of spare parts, and in terms of people. Stocks for the Canadian military will be replenished as quickly as possible. Armed conflicts around the world, including those in Haiti and Ukraine, are increasingly demanding the attention of Canadians and prompting the federal government to get involved. What is the state of our military? Are Canada's armed forces prepared to take on an expanded role in the world? Should we even want to take on an expanded role in the world? Right now, Canada spends around 1.27% of our annual GDP on the military. And while it's difficult to know the exact dollar figure that that amounts to every year, the number typically hovers around $25 billion, and that's actually set to rise sharply in the next few years. We currently have almost 50 current operations and joint military exercises going on around the world, and they range in size and scale. We have operations including Operation Soprano, Operation Crocodile, and Operation Neon. I don't know who names these things. It sounds like A24 movie titles, but I digress. Kenda's largest current military operation is in Latvia, and that one is Project Reassurance. We have around 1,000 members of our military there. However, despite the potential for expanding operations, our military is actually facing a lot of challenges. Perhaps most notably, the armed forces have been plagued by sexual misconduct. Over a quarter of the women currently serving in Canada's military said in a survey that they'd reported sexual assault at least once during their military careers. Many senior leaders in the armed forces are facing allegations of sexual misconduct and are under military police investigation. And of course, there are other issues still facing our military with weapons and stock going out of date, recruitment problems, and other senior management issues. One in 10 postings in the Canadian military is vacant right now. And all of this is going on while on top of the other conflicts and operations we've mentioned, Canada's Arctic is actually becoming increasingly vulnerable to Russia. So let's take a broad view of our armed forces. I think sometimes people forget in discussions of the military why we have a military, why there's so much money involved. So just to kind of give our listeners some background, what obligations, both, you know, legally and perhaps if you want to get into moral, morally, does the Canadian Armed Forces have? Like, why do we have a military? What is the point of it all? To bottom line, it's supposed to be for the defense of Canada. And that's it. That's why we have a military. I would argue that our military spending is deliberately lower than it would be uh, if we were not living right beside the United States because we live in the U.S. defense shadow and we can expect them to defend our interests if there was ever to be a threat. I would argue that the amount we're spending now, while it seems like a lot, would be far more if we weren't 
in the defense shadow of the Americans. But our military's job is, is the defense of Canada. And of course, the, by extension, it means the defense of our allies. In the case of NATO, if NATO decides in a collective response, we have to make troops available for that. In fact, we have 3,500 troops on uh, rapid response standby in case they're needed in Europe. Membership in NATO is supposed to entail a certain amount of military spending, you know, as a percentage of GDP that we're not hitting, I guess. And, you know, it's funny when you start to get down to brass tacks in this, uh, people become lawyers all of a sudden and they point out that it's not actually an obligation. It was a target we set. So effectively, we're supposed to spend 2% of our annual economic output on the military. And we've never hit that since the Cold War. And part of our problem is not that we're not committing enough. It's that we can't effectively spend the money. Each year, the forces throw back to the treasurer billions of dollars that they've been unable to spend because they're terrible at buying equipment. It is nightmarish how bad we are at buying equipment. So we have this military with a bunch of money. The money is not all being spent. So I guess it's interesting we have money that's being budgeted and then just gets returned. And so it seems maybe like there's more spending on paper than there actually is. Arshi, what do you think the top priorities are for the federal government when it comes to the military right now? I mean, if we're looking at dollars and cents, it's it's these very large procurements that have been ongoing for a while and that are being announced again. So, you know, this was introduced by the Harper government, but the National Shipbuilding Strategy, which has basically been an, an utter, utter debacle for the last decade, a decade behind when we're supposed to be delivering these ships. You know, we gave out these massive contracts to Irving Shipbuilding and to C-SPAN um, out west. And they have just not been able to deliver on these. Whether or not the government wants that to be their priority, it's certainly a huge commitment for them. And now we have this new contract to purchase F-35s from Lockheed Martin, which is, again, in the tens of billions of dollars. This is the, the most advanced, most expensive weapon system in the world. Obviously, the Trudeau government was quite opposed to this when they first came into office, but they've come on side. So this is another just absolutely kind of massive purchase that they're undertaking. And so, we're, we're, you know, we'll see how this one goes, at least in terms of, of its success. Will they actually be delivered on time and on budget? Almost nothing is when it comes to military procurement. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, I think we need to have jet fighters to patrol our landmass. We need, as one of the largest coastlines in the world, we need sufficient ships. And I mean, really, the fact is, is that for the last few decades, we've only been able to really project about 3000 uh, combat soldiers around the world. When I mean project, I mean, deploy anywhere in the world, we've been able to deploy about 3000 max, we should be able to sustain that. And many of the problems with procurement is it's because we and again, I'm not, I don't have an opinion on this, actually. We conflate it with regional development. We try to use procurement for industrial development. We want to have people in Canada who can build warships and Coast Guard cutters and research vessels. We want to have that technology here. We could buy these off the shelf in Korea or a Scandinavian country much cheaper. But we have chosen for industrial development reasons, and that is part of the problem. Again, I'm not taking a position on that. It's funny, I don't think I've heard anybody talk about the sort of shipping procurement during the Harper years in probably about 10 years. But I remember that was like one of the first 
I guess, military stories that I would have been following in terms of procurement. Because living in Halifax, there was a massive campaign, like literally everywhere all around town, signs basically doing PR to get Irving Shipbuilding a contract, like to the point that my dad still has a sign from it, like in the garage. That was how many of them there were. And I don't think it ever really came up at the time that maybe we should just go buy these ships from somewhere else. Like it was completely a conversation about which regional hubs are going to get the procurement contracts. And I had never really thought about it another way. I think it was uh, you against me <laughs> in that time. I'm from Levy. I grew up like just a couple of meters away from the huge shipyard there, the Davies shipyard. And it's been a story uh, for like the last 40 years of every time there's a contract, people get back to work. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, despite the fact that there was all of this money spent, even as recently as I think 2021, if you look at just any really news article, you talk to anybody who's in the Navy about, you know, what the state of the fleet is, pretty much the the consensus seems to be it's still bad. Like the fact that all of this money has been spent doesn't seem to have translated to, at least from the perspective of people in the military, like real improvements in the quality of the fleet. And they're not able to deploy more people. And they're like on these ships that they feel like should be decommissioned and all these things. So I do want to pivot a little bit away from talking about procurement and equipment back to something that we had touched on actually during the first part of the show, talking about interventionism. So, I mean, what has our history of intervention been like? Are there times where it's actually ever been successful or is it this sort of story of failure that we've learned from, you know, Afghanistan where it's really left a, a bad taste in people's mouths? I mean, in recent history, yes, it's been Afghanistan. People also will remember the decision of Canada not to go in Iraq and how that, in hindsight, turned out to be a great decision. I'm always hearing also a lot of nostalgia for the 90s Canada when people are like, oh, Canada's role in the world used to be so great. They're mostly, I think, talking about you know, Yugoslavia and, you know, those those years as well. You're asking what our kind of record on interventions has been. Probably the two most high profile ones in the last few decades are Somalia, in which we led a peacekeeping force, and Kandahar. Both were disasters. Mm -hmm. In Somalia, Canadian soldiers, Canadian white supremacist soldiers killed a teenage boy named Shadé Naron. It is one of the worst black eyes on the Canadian military throughout its history. And in Kandahar, in retrospect, what we can say is that despite our best efforts, the Canadian-led NATO presence in Kandahar actually likely contributed to more violence and helped destabilize the region considerably further than when we we actually went in in 2005. There have been a few things that I think we could count as perhaps successes. The ISAF mission in Kabul, in which basically Canadian soldiers were trying to keep Kabul stable and fine in the years after the U.S. Uh, intervention in Afghanistan, so this is basically around 2003, that seems to have gone fairly well from everyone I've spoken to and, and from the histories that you read. But when we've really gotten heavy in that intervention game, it has gone poorly for a lot of reasons, mostly because these are very complicated places and because you can't just like go in and try and fix everything with like soldiers. It, it usually does not work that way. Most military interventions are going to end badly because it's chaos. And But sometimes we make commitments knowing that. Um, in Kandahar in 2005, the government was clear to people that I remember the Bill Graham, the defense minister at the time, saying people are going to be coming home in body bags. You need to be aware of this. Yes, I think that 
I do. I'm not trying to lower the threshold for what's considered appropriate, but I do think that uh, anytime you send the military, it's, well, there's going to be a lot of negative consequences to that, and that's why you have to think very carefully about doing that. Right now, we have a perfect uh, military deployment in Latvia because we're not actually fighting anybody; we're just training. That's what the government loves: is a, a military deployment where people aren't actually doing anything, and it's our biggest one. And I also wanted to take a step back and go back to your original question about, you know, national security and what Stephen had said about, you know, the role of the military is to protect Canada, essentially defend Canada. There's the role for the military and intervention abroad that's mostly the first thing that we think of because we take for granted that security is, is not necessarily an issue on our own territory. That being said, I think we need to look into the 21st century of what is a national security threat. And I'm thinking about the way we've been seeing the military intervening during this pandemic, even, they've been necessary. And I'm thinking as well as we're heading into, I'm going to use a bad pun here, but a shitstorm of climate emergencies that also is more likely to happen as well. Like having military deployment within Canada because of lack of electricity, like we've seen 25 years ago now in Quebec with the ice storm that just cut like half of the province from electricity in the middle of winter, we're likely to see those kind of things happen in other parts of the country, extreme weather events, uh, storms, whatever, that can really impact people's uh, security in Canada, but also abroad. And so there might be also a role for the military abroad in helping with those extreme weather events. In the United States, the U.S. military, each branch or service or even sub-branches have far more profile than they do in Canada. Mm -hmm. like we don't know a lot about each of the branches. But in the U.S., there's something called the Army Corps of Engineers. We have something similar. We have a logistics and Army Corps. That would clearly be something that would be useful for, for dealing with climate change. You've got all these people standing around. They're being paid, and they can be used for whatever threats we deem necessary. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when we probably won't have solved all of Canada's military's problems, but we can dream. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach. Emily, where can people find you? They can find me in Le Devoir and now in Libération in France. And uh, I'm also, of course, hosting the tour here on Canada. Archie, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Archie Man, or you can also go listen to Commons on this network. And we, in fact, last year had an entire eight-part series on the history of the war in Afghanistan. So if military stuff piques your interest, I would definitely check that out. And Stephen, where can people find you? Uh, at Stephen Chase on Twitter and, of course, Globemail.com. Canada's first military engagement post-Confederation was in the Nile Expedition, an 1884-1885 mission to Sudan in support of a long-term British military engagement in the region. The expedition was generally considered to be a failure. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard, with additional production by Noor Azria and Tristan Capicione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. 
You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.